Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm sitting here with Ben Hunter and we're sitting across from the one and only Tony Jones. Welcome, Tony. Thanks very much for having me again. It's fantastic to be here. Tony, you've brought in uh, a second novel, Invisible Darkness. No, um, In Darkness Visible. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, I've, been, um, I've been getting that uh, mixed up in my brain a well, hundred times. Well, Darkness Visible comes from Milton's Paradise Lost. Yes. And uh, all I've done was add the in. So um, it made it more. It made it make more sense. I think <laughs> the idea. So the idea of darkness visible is that uh, Lucifer's fallen angels end up sort of in the burning pits of hell, and the only place they can be seen is in this darkness. So it's darkness visible is where you see these uh, monsters, and so uh, in darkness visible has that in darkness visible has that kind of thing happening. Uh, one of the characters in particular, um, you have to ask yourself just how evil is he? Or maybe he's not. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board now. Um, tell us about uh, the, the new novel. Um, it's right on the back of The 20th Man. Um, yeah, introduce us to it, please. Okay, so um, I think it's unusual probably for an Australian novel in that it's mostly set... Um, in international settings. Mm. Um, so it begins in Croatia on the Croatian coast in a beautiful little town called Rovin, um, where your main character is um, living under an assumed name and he gets tumbled and arrested. Um, this happens very early mm. on in the book and dragged away um, in handcuffs with a hood over his head uh, to the War Crimes Commission in The Hague uh, to face a war crimes trial. And you know a little bit about him. You've met him uh, in The 20th Man. Um, I won't tell you what he did there because I hope <laughs> everyone will go and read that book as well. Um, but he has a kind of dark past that he's running from. And now he's been caught, accused of war crimes in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. And uh, his old girlfriend from the 1970s, uh, a wonderful investigative journalist called Anna Rosen, um, who's a, the daughter of the head of the Australian Communist Party mm. um, and an ABC journalist. So uh, obviously proving the point uh, that all ABC journalists come from the left and some from the far, far left. Um, <laughs> but she's actually got an interesting background. She rejected communism a long time ago, but she's a brilliant investigator. This guy was her lover when they were in their 20s. Yes. And she gets um, very unusually a series of photographs which indicate the man she thought was dead is not dead at all, uh, but he's in a war crimes prison in The Hague and she sets off to investigate. That's fascinating. And that's a conflict you've actually covered yourself, is that right? Yes, it is. So I've actually drawn... Um, it's one of the reasons why I guess I can hopefully write a, a, an internationally set novel that sort of rings true uh, because a lot of it was taken from notes that I that I made at the time, sort of, um, you know, aid memoirs and um, uh, diary notes and descriptions of places and scenes um, back um, during the conflict uh, in the former Yugoslavia, during the wars that were going on there. I, I had in mind always that I might one day want to come back and write a novel about this. So some of the scenes um, set during the conflict uh, uh, reflect things that happened to me or that I witnessed. Um, and so um, I hope it feels to people who read it like it's, it's real, um, because for me it was. And um, I tried to give a real sense of the, of, um, you know, the veracity, the horror of these kind of conflicts as well, and I put my main characters in the middle of them. Why did you uh, 
um, want to take this uh, experience and, and put that into a novel? Um, when, when did the um, sort of drive to write begin for you? Um, I think I've probably always had that. Um, it's part of being a journalist. You know, every mm. journalist, they say, has the novel in the bottom drawer, maybe two, <laughs> hopefully three. Um, so I always wanted to write and make films. Actually, those are the two things I really wanted to do. So I've been sort of caught, uh, you know, stuck in the kind of lane of journalism and factual reporting now for most of my life, And but I've always wanted to do this. Um, so that's, I guess, part of the reason why I've you know, over many, many years, um, you know, played with these ideas and thoughts and taken notes thinking this will be useful one day when I actually get to do what I really want. Mm. Um, and, and I think it is useful because it's got a sort of research you couldn't go back and do. You can't go back in time and live these experiences. So um, I, I feel um, like I was very privileged, really, to be a foreign correspondent uh, for many, many years. And, and hopefully um, that'll give people the sense that they're experiencing things as I experienced them myself, but through the eyes of these characters. So um, why did I want to do it? I, many, many years ago, before I even became a foreign correspondent, I was working at Four Corners, um, and I, I did a series of stories, including one uh, about war criminals from the Second World War who'd come to live in Australia. Um, and I found um, that there were quite a large number of them. I worked with a guy called Mark Ahrens, mm. um, whose father was the... Um, head of the Australian Communist Party, Laurie Ahrens. Um, so Mark, you can therefore deduce, might be a bit of a model to some, to some degree for Anna Rosen, um, you know, so Jewish communist, except a woman. Yeah. Uh, so it's in a way it's the, the left side of Mark Ahrens' brain um, helped inspire um, Anna Rosen. But when I learnt about these Second World War criminals, war criminals who were coming to Australia, having taken part, many of them, in the Holocaust... I was kind of horrified by the idea that they could set up here in Australia. Um, and the reason they were able to do it was because their records were cleansed or cleaned, and they call them uh, whitened, uh, by international security agencies, uh, MI6, the, the nascent CIA, I think it was in those days called the OSS, um, took these uh, Nazis, as many of them were, and used them during the Cold War to infiltrate back behind the Iron Curtain. So they were very useful people because they had networks behind the Iron Curtain. War criminals, obviously, mm. who had their records expunged. As a reward, they were able to emigrate with clean um, records to countries like Australia and Canada, the United States, Britain and others. Um, but we got quite a lot of them here and they set up networks in Australia. Um, many of them um, wanted to go back and free the countries that they came from, from communism. And so that's the background of our main character, Marin Kadic. His father was a dyed-in-the-wool Croatian Ustasha war criminal. We learned all about him, really, in the first book, The 20th Man, and, and the kind of poison that he inculcated into his son that causes his son to do some terrible things. Um, but his son is also has a kind of noble quality about him that you pick up, I think, um, particularly in this book, uh, because he ends up going back to fight against communism again um, as a much older man and becomes a militia commander in Bosnia, trying to free Bosnia and Croatia from the communist yoke, as he would say it. Um, have we, do we, as readers, do we want to read uh, The 20th Man first before we can dip into this new novel? or You won't need to do that, but I'm hoping that if anyone hasn't read The 20th Man, 
and then they read In Darkness Visible. Mm. They'll want to go back and find out more about these characters, the young lives of these characters, because they're both in their 50s. It's 30 years later, mm. uh, this is said. So it's in uh, 2005 when Marin Kadic is picked up by the SAS and a, a collection of Croatian um, uh, well, special forces, really, mm. that, that, uh, that I knew for a fact were racing around um, uh, that part of the world and arresting war criminals. It was part of a deal done with NATO um, that they would get rid of their dark people um, and let them be tried by the International Tribunal. Was it a fun exercise in imagining the, the sort of decades in between, um, you know, where these characters, you know, where you left them and then where you've taken them to now? Yes, I guess I can't give away the biggest yes, secret, but yeah, there's there's um, there's a there's something that links these two people over thirty years. Otherwise, you would imagine uh, someone like Anna Rosen would have moved on and not really thought a lot about this kind of dark character from her past. Uh, but there's something that links them. Uh, it it comes to light in the novel, and um, I won't sort of. Uh, explain what that is, but people will find out. Uh, there's a pretty profound link between these people, mm. um, and as as that unfolds, as we learn more about that, um, you'll see what Anna's motivations are, and um, it becomes a big shock for Marin Kadic sitting in his prison cell uh, in the Hague, too, you know, preparing himself to face trial. You've backed this one up really quickly on the on the first novel. Uh, what was the sort of takeaway experiences of writing for the first time? Um, and are you a pro now? Am I what, sorry? Are you a pro now? Am I a pro now? Yeah. Are you a, a pro now? Are you, I heard that too. Are you a professional? I'm a professional writer. Um, look, I, I think, you know, it's probably a lifetime learning experience becoming mm. a novelist. Um, I hope that I'll just keep getting better and better at it. It did seem to me um, that I felt a little bit more like I knew what I was doing second time round. But you can be the judge of that and readers can <laughs> be the judge of that. But, you know, I hope if they get carried along by this story, um, they will go back and read The 20th Man. Um, sorry, go on. So did you feel, do you feel like your background in journalism, um, do you find that the transition from writing and being in that journalistic um, mindset is different to novel writing in any significant way, or do you...? Yes, oh, man, in a hugely significant way, because you can, you know, the bounds of journalism, the constraints of journalism, um, you know, are pretty profound. You have to stick to the facts, obviously. And, um, and while there are many facts in the story, whilst the historical settings, um, the locations, even the battles um, that you find yourself immersed in are based on things that really happened, and there are real characters um, in the middle of uh, those events. Um, my fictional characters can do whatever they like, really, um, in that context. So, um, you know, I created a, a, a kind of world that's that's real to my memory of it um, and to my research of the kind of, um, particularly the Battle of Vukovar, uh, which was a kind of modern-day Stalingrad. Um, like Siege of Stalingrad is considered to be one of the the most extraordinary and horrific events, you know, that happened during the course of the Second World War. We'll leave the Holocaust aside because that's the signal event. We can't even compare it to. But, mm. you know, but in terms of actual battles, the battle for Stalingrad was decisive uh, in the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, come, um, you know, the mid-'90s, we have a mini Stalingrad happening in Yugoslavia. There's a, a town, a city called Vukovar, um, and... It becomes the place where Croatian Democrats want to prove that they don't have to be part of this Serbian communist empire led by this dark figure called Slobodan Milosevic, the president 
of uh, Yugoslavia at the time. And in order to crush their independence movement, he decides to, to throw everything he's got against the um, people in Vukovar um, who, are, who have risen up against him. And so we're talking tens of thousands of troops. Um, you know, probably 50 or 60,000 uh, troops are used. They surround the city um, with artillery and bombard it for months on end. And they send in these massive lines of tanks um, and other armoured weaponry to sort of crush these people. And the amazing thing is that against these you know, tens of thousands of troops with all their armour, uh, some 2,000 Croatian fighters uh, stand against uh, this massive force and hold them off for about four or five months. It's just astonishing as a feat of arms. In fact, it's taught um, in, in the Marines. Uh, now they now look at that um, in, their, in their training uh, as a way in which a small group of men can take on a big army. Um, and they did it with, you know, missiles, uh, handheld missiles that could destroy tanks and so on. So Marin Kadic is in the middle of that, uh, in the middle of that extraordinary uh, mess. Um, and he's, you know, amongst a group of very brave fighters. So the guy that you've come to know as, you know, maybe having a very dark past also is very brave. Um, and the people around him are astonishingly brave. And whereas we had... Um, after the 20th man, uh, because I told some of the dark side of Croatian history, some people in the Croatian community were very upset with that book and upset with me. Um, but I actually think once they realised the full scope of what I have to say about their people, and particularly this extraordinary moment, they'll have a very different view. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, the wealth of experience you have in foreign um, journalism, particularly in, in Europe in the 90s, uh, it's a real wealth of experience what do we in the west um or particularly in australia sort of um what do we not see when we look at the former yugoslavia you know there's so many layers of history of war uh, there's war crimes there's religious tensions ethnic tensions there's communism there's nazism in the history um how do you make sense of it all mm. what do we miss out uh, it's very complicated and difficult to make <laughs> yeah. sense of, but the, the one thing we probably missed out on, the one thing that many of us don't understand is the connection that our own country had to these events. Mm. Um, so, for example, when um, the Croatians decided to stand up against Serbia and split themselves away, become in, declare themselves to be independent of Belgrade, the Serbs in Belgrade, the Croats on the other side, you know, traditional enemies, Catholics versus Orthodox Christians, communists versus, you know, nouveau Democrats, um, you name it. But a huge number of uh, expats, um, not only from Australia but from Canada and other places, went to join that fight because many of them had been brought up by their parents to understand um, that Croatia um, wanted its own place in the mm. world as an independent country. Um, and you can understand that. I mean, you know, it's, it's quite... To me, they, they regard themselves, or how, as I understand it, they regarded themselves like the Americans during the revolution who stood up against the evil British overlords and they were kind of noble and they had the idea of building a new democracy in the United States. That was what the revolution was all about. That's how some of these people, the Croatians in particular, uh, used to talk, you know, going way back to the 1970s, used to talk about why they have a mission 
to go and free their their homeland. And what we didn't understand here, I think, because you you would have seen over many years, you know, huge battles on soccer fields mm. between Croats and Serbs, and um, these kind of tensions have festered away in our society for a long time because history never goes away. Uh, and for many people, they decide that they're going to keep that history. Um, and some of the toughest fighters, some of the ones who who ended up going and you know rising to the top of the uh, of the military. Um, the military institutions in this new country came from Canada and Australia, came from Britain, came from the United States. And that's what we don't understand, I think, is how present history is in the minds of many people who, even, who live here even today. Mm. And we get it, obviously, because of, you know, you talk about um, people running across as foreign fighters to join ISIS who've been brought, born and brought up gone to schools in Australia, speak with Australian accents, and yet something happens that causes them to throw away everything that they've learned in Australia, to throw away Australia itself mm. and become something else because they have a dream um, of doing something in another country. Now, I'm, the, the ISIS dream is particularly gruesome and evil, um, but that doesn't mean that Australians didn't go there. So the foreign fighter laws um, that were enacted um, many, many years before uh, this ISIS thing happened, were enacted to deal with Croatians who were going to try and establish um, kind of revolutionary uh, wars within Yugoslavia back in the 1960s and 70s. So um, that's where our foreign fighter laws came from. It's one of those you know little dark places in our history mm. we don't often re we don't often visit. We don't no. know we don't understand, I think as well as we should, what our kind of multicultural, um, society means and not everything about it is absolutely perfect nor would you expect it to be no yeah uh, what is it about the political thriller that keeps drawing us back um, especially <laughs> in a, a modern climate where um, you know life seems to be imitating art in the worst <laughs> sense yeah. of it um, you know uh, big state surveillance uh, you know Trump and threatening to end NATO and and the threat of nuclear annihilation sort of back on the cards again um, why do we? Why do we keep? This is, this is why I go for history because <laughs> <laughs> if I were to try and write anything about the present, no one would believe it, and it'd all be true. I mean, it's quite <laughs> shocking when you think about it. Um, what keeps drawing us back to these events, I think, is the importance that history still holds for us. Is what I was saying earlier, and mm. you know, it'll take some time, I suspect, before we can um, put the events of the current day in some kind of perspective. Um, and write sort of, you know, really good, um, let's say, thrillers in, historical, uh, in a historical context about these events. We need now, we need to absorb what all of this means and then reflect on it and then write about it. So I guess what I'm saying is that I've now had a long time to think about and I've absorbed some of these historical lessons myself. I've lived in the middle of history um, in Europe and Eastern Europe in particular as, as communism collapsed and fell and then was destroyed. Um, and I've had some time to reflect on it. And now to put my characters in the middle of that, I feel like I at least understand the world around them. So that hopefully that context will, will come across as being believable. That sounds absolutely yeah, I think it fascinating. Will. <laughs> I think we've got um, lots of appetites wet for this new novel. I, I hope that's true. And um, as I say, if people like this one um, and they hopefully get dragged into this it's quite I think it is it's a genuine thriller in the sense that mm. um, th thrilling things happen and um, you know lives are at stake 
constantly. So um, I hope if people like that, they'll go back and look at the history that created this book. I know I will. Thanks so much for coming in, Tony. This has been wonderful. It's a pleasure. And for those listening at home, you can buy your copy of In Darkness Visible by Tony Jones. (laughs) Sorry, Ben. (laughs) At booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.